0: Thank you, Han. Good morning. Oh, come on. Good morning. Yeah, we're back. It's going to happen. I'm Travis. I'm one of the pastors here. It's good to be with you as we continue on in our series in the book of Exodus. Uh, We are calling this series uh, Exodus from Captivity to Covenant, uh, focusing on God's deliverance of his people from the soul-crushing oppression that they faced as slaves, and not just delivering them from that, but delivering them to something, delivering them into relationship with him, into something that's called covenant, uh, which is a bond of the highest kind that we can make with the deepest promises, the greatest privileges, and the most serious penalties, all of which are directed at leading God's people, at leading you out of spiritual and physical darkness And into the light of life with God. Uh, We continue that story this morning of God's delivering people from captivity to covenant as we pivot into what's known as the wilderness wanderings. In Exodus, this is a shorter passage, uh, but other books of Scripture have longer, more detailed. expositions of what happened with God and Israel at that time. But this is an important time in the history of the people of God, this wilderness period, and it's actually a recurring theme throughout Scripture. This isn't something that's just limited to the Old Testament. It's a time in the life of the people of God at this particular moment that's very hard. Uh, But as we think about this as a recurring theme, it's also true of the Christian life. The wilderness times that we go through as the people of God, are difficult. Nothing feels easy when you are in a spiritual wilderness. Everything feels like it's a painful challenge. It's the kind of experience that forces you almost to cry out, either in agony or in anger, and sometimes both. That's what we see the people of God doing this morning, crying out to God about the wilderness that they have entered into. And this is not just about what happened to people long, long ago and what doesn't happen to us Anymore. As we said, this is a recurring theme. The wilderness is a way that Scripture talks about the challenges that we go through life, even this whole period that we are in between Christ's first coming and between His return. So this is a theme that's important for us to grasp because all of us are either walking into a time of wilderness struggle. You are either walking into that, you're in that right now. Maybe some of you can feel that. Maybe some of you can say a hearty amen to that. I know we have some new parents this morning. Y'all are in the wilderness period of the no sleep zone. Or you're walking out of that period of wilderness and you will come to it again. So wherever you are, this has something that's important for you to hear this morning. So we're going to look at the wilderness events of the manna, the bread from heaven, and how the people of God grumbled against him here in the wilderness To see then how God speaks not just to them, but to us about being in the wilderness, about how God ministers to you there, about our spiritual needs and struggles, I want to turn our attention to just two questions. Why does grumbling happen, and how does God respond to grumbling? Okay, two questions. Why does grumbling happen here, and how does God respond to our grumbling? Now, before we dive into that, I would just ask you to pray with me as we enter into this time of exploring God's Word together. Let's pray. Father, we come before you, as as we've just said, uh, in many different places, maybe in this period of spiritual wilderness right now, maybe walking out of it, maybe walking into it and not knowing where we are this morning. But God, you always knew where your people were. It was always part of your plan to take them through the wilderness. Likewise, it's your plan to continue to be with us wherever we may be, wherever we may go. You have promised to be our God and to have us as your people. I pray for my friends in here and who are watching, who are not yet your people, that you might call to them as well in the wilderness times that they may face, that they have faced. God, would you speak into that? Would you speak for my brothers and sisters who do know you this morning? Would you remind them that you are God? And that nothing and no one can snatch them out of your hand. But they will always be yours, always have been yours. So, Father, would you show up in this way this morning? Would you be greater than our hearts? Would you overwhelm us with your presence and your grace? It's in your Son's powerful name and by your Holy Spirit that we pray. Amen. Well, let's dive right in then to why grumbling happens in the first place. Why do people grumble? Why did Israel grumble? Well, at this point, they are 30 days outside of the Exodus, 30 days outside those events that we talked about just a couple of weeks ago, where God did miraculous, society-changing, world-changing things one at a time for a period of weeks up until the point of 10. These were, these were cosmic kind of shifts in the landscape of the world's most powerful country at that time. We're only 30 days outside of that. Think of some of those landmark moments in recent history. Think about 9-11. This would only be something like 30 days outside something like 9-11 when the paradigm so fundamentally shifts. We're not that far out of a huge paradigm shift. People are still going through a lot. That's what verse 1 tells us here. We're at that 30-day point, and at that 30-day point, the people of God come to yet another desert. They had just earlier in chapter 15 made a quick stop at an area where there were some springs of water, but now they're coming into what's called the wilderness of Sin, which is not a play on words. Sin is just near Sinai, S-I-N-A-Y, Sin, S-I-N. It's part of, in the region of, the mountain of Sinai. And in verse 2, there in this wilderness of sin, they start grumbling, or we could say complaining, right away. Uh, And what's interesting about this is that the text doesn't give us any indication that at this point they lacked food or were on the verge of starvation. There is nothing that clues us into some kind of immediate need. They haven't said, we're starving, where are you? There's no real reason they should be complaining or afraid here from a needs- perspective rather as verse 3 says they longed to be back at the meat pots of Egypt where they were eating bread to the full meat in their time differently from our time was a luxury was a delicacy was not something that you had every day so this is not saying that they're complaining about having no food really they're complaining about wanting better food they want the luxuries they want the fine dining experience they want to have that night in and night out that's what they're complaining about here right it's the service this is a yelp review on god this restaurant is terrible the service is terrible there is no variety on the menu when you order the food is cold right this is what the people of god are complaining about we see a lot of grumbling on yelp and some of that grumbling has saved you some terrible meals amen so there is a perhaps a time and a place to share those things but this is this is a little different this is like the people of god kind of saying Waiter, waiter, Uh, where is my bread and meat? Chop, chop, I ordered. Come on, deliver. And in this, we can see that the reason they're grumbling isn't because God isn't meeting their needs, but because God isn't meeting their expectations. They're complaining because God isn't meeting their expectations of what they think deliverance should look like. See, deliverance in their mind meant something very different than going through a desert. That is not deliverance in their mindset. After being enslaved so long, that's not what they were thinking deliverance were, would look like. In their mind, it seems to be that deliverance meant living like the Egyptians. Living high on the hog, having what they had, doing what they did, going to parties, it meant money power, possessions, comfort, all the things that they watch people who are oppressing them have, they think those things are what deliverance would look like whether or not God was around. That's what they had watched, that's what they had seen, that's what their hearts had gravitated towards. In other words, Egypt has rubbed off on them more than they know. Their grumbling, their longing to live like the Egyptians did is showing us that though they have left Egypt, Egypt has not left them. Though they have been brought out of Egypt, Egypt has not yet been brought out of them. Their hearts are still longing for other gods, other things. It seems to be that in their hearts they're saying, it's okay that I want these things whether God's in them or not because... I want them. Isn't that enough? That I want it? Shouldn't God just give it to me because I want it? And maybe some of you have felt that. Maybe some of you feel that right now this morning. But what's dangerous about an unchecked version of that idea is that is exactly what led to the oppression that the Egyptians levied on the Israelites. The Egyptians were saying way back in chapter one, can't I just have what I want, which is never to feel unsafe, never to feel insecure, never to have my power threatened. Isn't it okay to just have what I want? Because eventually, something is going to threaten what you want. And you're going to have to choose between giving up this fierce desire that you have and caring for the life of another. Israel has had Egypt ingrained in their heart and they are starting to think, they are starting to walk down the line that leads you not to blessing and flourishing, but to corruption, destruction, and oppression of others. That's why this is a serious moment because they are wandering after things that lead them not to the deliverance that God would have for them, but to something that is not actually deliverance. It's just enslavement by a different name. Is that true of you this morning? Do you have a different idea than God has about what deliverance looks like in your life? Is your idea of deliverance more about freeing you up to have what you want from God or... Is it about being freed up to finally have God? What is it? If you're really honest, what is it? If you're grumbling at the circumstances and the people in your life complaining about these things, there is probably some way in which you are still stuck in that proverbial Egypt, still longing for the quote-unquote good life that somebody else has not the one that God has for you, though. The one that you think ought to be yours. See, the, the reason that Israel grumbled, the reason that we grumble are the same. They grumbled, we grumble, we complain because God isn't doing what we expect Him to do. That's why we complain. He isn't being God according to our rules, according to our timelines, according to our preferences and desires. He isn't doing what we say and bringing us what we want, our version of thriving when we say it should be here, how we say it should be here. He isn't taking us back to that Egypt that we want. He's not meeting our expectations, and that's why we Complain. In effect, we complain because He's being God when we want to be God. That's why we complain. He's leading us into a wilderness when we want to be at the buffet. And we hate that. We have severe doubts that this could be the way, that the things you're going through in life right now, we have severe doubts that somehow, God, this is going to lead to deliverance? This? Right now? No. That's why we complain, and in truth, our doubts are somewhat justified, because it's actually not the way to the deliverance that we want, but it is the way to the deliverance that we need. And that's the story, maybe the whole story, in a sentence of the book of Exodus. God leading his people not to what they want, but to what they need. And in fact, God has always been committed to this, always is committed to this, to leading us to what we need, even if it's not what we want at the time. Even when we're grumbling at him and saying, this is stupid. Why are you doing this? It should not be this way. Even when we don't know the way, God's committed to leading us to flourishing because he, as scripture calls him, is our Father. And He loves us, and He is not content to let the children that He loves just ruin their lives because they don't know which way is up. He is not content to let us settle for that. This is actually one of the beauties of Christianity, that God is not relying on you to know the way to your own flourishing this morning. He doesn't need that from you. He's not waiting on that from you. With God's deliverance, freedom isn't just for those who are smart enough, strong enough, and, and committed enough to actually get it. It's for all those who what? Who trust in Him. Not all those who achieve their way into the future they want to have. All those who put in the time, who get the right residencies, who get into the right grad programs, who may have the right relationships, who buy the house at the right time. That's not what God's deliverance looks like. God's deliverance is for those who trust in him and it may not feel like it but that is really the best news that you could possibly hear whether you're a christian or not because there is a hidden tyranny in that kind of self salvation model that our culture pitches to us where i find freedom when i choose the right way for me and no one tells me any differently Because contrary to the beliefs behind that mindset, beliefs we get not from Scripture but from the Enlightenment, a particular Western contextual way of thinking about what freedom looks like, and Scripture doesn't agree that that's a whole picture of freedom, just choosing for yourself. That's far too limited. Because when you have to choose freedom to have it, then freedom isn't a gift. It depends on something. It depends on your ability, your ability to choose it. And your choice can be wrong. In fact, you can know what's best and still not choose it, still not desire it. When freedom comes from choice, it is still a self-salvation project. Sure, no one tells you what to do. At the same time, no one saves you from you. How often have you known what's best for you and not done it? How often have your desires led you to something that you regret? Raise your hand if you have some regrets in here this morning. My hand is not up as a sign. I have regrets, right? Our own choices have led us to things that we regret. How often have you thought you knew the right path forward and you found out that is actually not the way that things get done? That is not the way that leads to flourishing. You found out there was something you missed, something you overlooked, something you didn't know about. I know I have. If you looked at my stock trades over the last six months, you would see that I did not know the way many times. This idea that we find freedom by choosing solely for ourselves is proved wrong even by our own life experience. We aren't our own saviors. We don't have the limitless knowledge and power that's required to bring us to the freedom that we so desire, the freedom that we have been made to have. No, for real deliverance we need someone who does have that unlimited knowledge and power but the reason we don't like that is because then someone can tell us what to do so often we would rather settle for less because it means that no one tells us no i would just urge you this morning to reconsider that model and think what if i actually had more because someone told me no What if I could look back at those moments that I regret in my life and someone told me no and I listened and I didn't go through that? Could you imagine what that would feel like today to be walking in these doors with no regrets? Not because God hasn't healed those things, but because those things never happened. Sometimes we have to just dig a little deeper into the things that we assume will give us freedom because they don't. And the things we think won't give us freedom actually do. That's the kind of freedom we need, the kind of freedom where someone can do it, not just for the strong and the smart and the committed, but for those who trust Him. Because at some point, all of us are not going to be strong enough, smart enough, or committed enough. At some point, we all recognize that we need a Savior. I'm just trying to encourage you to get there earlier than maybe you otherwise would this morning. Because that's the kind of freedom that we need, the kind that leads you to flourishing even when you don't know how to get there, even when you don't want to go where you need to go, even when flourishing leads through the wilderness. And for that, we need God. And that brings us to our second question this morning. How does God respond then to this kind of grumbling, this kind of going your own way at any cost, even when it doesn't lead to flourishing. Well, God responds to grumbling, responds to complaining, maybe in a different way than you and I might. I don't know how you respond to complaining, but I typically don't respond to it with joy, with peace, with a Zen-like attitude that says, sure, bring your complaints, right? It's defenses up, shields up. No, you don't tell me that, you don't correct me that way, but how does God respond to grumbling even understanding their grumbling better than you and I do, God responds knowing exactly what they're doing. How? With grace. The grace of two things providing daily bread and providing rest. Those are the two main things that God is doing in this passage. He is graciously providing food and rest. And I want to look at each of those two more in depth to flesh out how God responds to. Grumbling, first God responds with the grace of providing daily bread and meat, a luxury even, good food. Verses eleven through twelve says, And the Lord said to Moses, I have heard the grumbling of the people of Israel, say to them, At twilight you shall eat meat, and in the morning you shall be filled with bread. Then you shall know that I am the Lord. And verse thirty one says the manna, the bread was actually tasty. It was good. It tasted like a honey wafer. That's not something you just find laying around out in the desert. So God is actually giving them delicious bread and fine, luxurious meat that they have been grumbling for. Only he's not doing it in Egypt. He's doing it right there in the wilderness one day at a time. Why do that? Why give them what they're grumbling for? This feels a little bit like God's caving in. Is he caving in? Now, God is actually not caving in here. God is giving them what they are grumbling for because God's antidote to the grumbling of his people, to our grumbling likewise, is not cutting us off, is not raging against us, but giving us daily bread, daily sustaining. It's the antidote because daily provision teaches his people to depend on him to rely on Him, the God who gives good gifts, to see that He, in fact, is what they need, that He is the source, that they might know that it is the Lord who delivers them, as verse 12 says. Not so that they could rely on themselves and their own strength, as Egypt did. Not so that they could rely on a prosperous place where they felt like everything was good, where people were flourishing, like Egypt and the Nile. Not to rely, in other words, on what their eyes could see and on what their hands could do, but to rely on God. That's what giving daily bread does. It requires them to return to relying on God. And this is, in fact, what we lost in the very beginning of time when Adam and Eve similarly doubted that God's way could be the right way that not eating from this one particular tree might actually be good for them, might actually be the best thing for them. Think about that. That way back when, someone didn't know what the right way was and they chose the wrong way. They used their freedom poorly. And we lost through their sin through their doubting God, our ability to rely on God in a day-to-day way that they were relying on God, a day-to-day way that did not have suffering, that did not have pain, that did not have frustration. And here, all those years later, that loss is still plaguing God's people, pushing them to doubt whether God is really good, to doubt whether he is really strong, whether he is really for them, pushing them to grumble against him Even after all they just saw him do, only 30 days before in Egypt. And in fact, these are the same lies, the same temptations that you and I hear and believe even now. Is God really good? Is he really for me? Is he really powerful? Maybe not. Maybe I'll just have to do it. Maybe I'll just have to take care of it. Yet then, as in our passage, God's antidote antidote to to their grumbling, to our grumbling, is to give us back what we lost, which was him, our relationship with him, our reliance on him day in and day out as we were meant to in the Garden of Eden. See, God's response to grumbling is to give graciously the thing that will bring you back back. To him, Not because it gives you what you want, but because it gives you what you need. He's answering their question through this provision. Did he bring them there to die? He didn't bring them there to die. He brought them there to bring them back to him. If they could have found him in Egypt, he would have kept them there. If they could have found God at the meat pots of Egypt, he would have kept them there. But they couldn't, so he didn't. And each day when the bread fell and the birds came, they would be drawn back to Him, to finding Him out there in the wilderness, a place where there is no mistaking your need, a place where there is no mistaking God's presence. The question would be, as they're forced to come back to Him day after day, whether He is really what they want. Likewise, in our challenges and the wilderness times that we go through, God doesn't bring us out in the wilderness to die. He brings us there to find Him. And this is the hard truth. If, he, if you could have found Him where you were, He would have left you there. But you couldn't, so He wouldn't. If you would have been kept near to the Lord without the suffering that you're going through, without the suffering that you had gone through, He would have let you go around it. But He will not lose you, even if that means taking you through the wilderness. And so, whatever the cost may be, He will pay it. Though it's painful, He will bring you there because He will not lose you. It's you He wants most, not your comfort. And one day you will have comfort with him. But we have to go through at times the wilderness first. His daily provision is meant to both draw us to him and at the same time flesh out whether he's the one that we really want. In other words, it's meant to meet you where you are but not to leave you there. To open up your heart and have you explore what is it that I really want? Am I settling for something that will not save me? It's meant to draw you back to Him. That's what God's daily provision in your lives, the ways that He's making you wait for something that you don't have yet, making you rely on Him in a moment-by-moment way. Come back to Him for these smaller doses. Why He's not giving you the full plan. Why He's not telling you the five-year plan for your life. Because it is meant to keep you near to Him. If He could give you that and you would stay near to Him, He would give you that. But most of all, He knows you need Him and He is going to give you Him. However uncomfortable that may feel for you. This is how God responds to our grumbling. Graciously by giving us Himself. And this is only the first way that He responds to our grumbling. He responds even more so to the people of God by giving them something they weren't asking for, something they didn't know to ask for. He responds by giving them rest, something called Sabbath. Let's look then at God's grace of providing rest to them. We look back at verses 5 and 22 to 23. Verse 5 says, on the sixth day when they prepare what they bring in, it will be twice as much as they gather daily. Jump into 22. On the sixth day, they gathered twice as much bread, two omers, that's about a gallon, two omers each. And when all the leaders of the congregation came and told Moses, he said to them, this is what the Lord has commanded. Tomorrow is a, solemn, is a day of solemn rest, a holy Sabbath to the Lord. Bake what you will bake, boil what you will boil, and all that is left over lay aside to be kept till the morning. So yes, God is going to provide for them daily, but he wasn't going to make them gather bread every day. He was going to give them enough so that on the sixth day, a whole day out of a week of seven, that they could find a time of rest and we're not going to go into this too much because we are going to cover rest and Sabbath when we transition into the Ten Commandments that we're going to settle in on for the last half of this series, but briefly into the point of how God responds to grumbling. This is the first invitation that the people of God have had to have something like a day off in hundreds of years. Whole generations have gone by without knowing what it's like to have a day off. Centuries have gone by. Families have lived and died without having anything like rest. Slaves of the sort that Israel were in Egypt didn't get a day off. They didn't have rights and privileges. They were turned into property from people. Yet here, despite their grumbling, their frustration at not being God, not getting to call the shots, God is working to return them to the dignity that belongs to all humans turning them, as it were, back from property into people. See, the invitation to rest here is actually hearkening back to the Genesis creation account where God himself rests from his work on the seventh day, being satisfied with all that he had done in the six days before. And the implication of this mention of rest on the seventh day in Exodus here is that people have been made in the image of God. And that as those who are made in the image of God, we get to be like God. We get to rest. We don't have to always be at work, always be unsatisfied. We can rest we can be satisfied and still that god is our creator and our provider we can feel that we are not the property of our achievements not the property of our goals but we are the property of god and made in his image and have a dignity that cannot be touched or tarnished because we could or couldn't achieve this thing because we could or couldn't get that relationship that we want because we could or couldn't fix the problems in our lives we get a dignity that cannot be changed we get to rest from all the ways that we are trying to save ourselves from being rejected from being feeling like we don't have it together feeling like we are not enough God wants to give you that kind of rest this is what God is doing for them doing for you remaking you in his image while they are doubting and going out to gather food again on the seventh day when God said don't go looking for food because it's not gonna be there I told you you're going to have more than enough for what you need, and yet they doubt what is God doing for them. God, while they are grumbling, is planning rest. God, while they are grumbling, is redeeming them from property to people. This is God's gracious response to grumbling. Giving a gift that wasn't looked for redeeming a loss they didn't know they had, doing more than they knew to ask for, And it's not just something God was willing to do once, willing to do back then in the early days when people hadn't tested him time and again and again. This is God's gracious response to grumbling throughout all of time. This is his whole paradigm for how he approaches humanity. He is the God who moves towards us when we run away from him. He is not waiting for you to figure it out. He is ten steps of you having already figured it out and planning the way for you to get there, clearing the way for you to come home. This is, in fact, precisely what God was doing at the cross while we were simply grumbling in our sin, grating against the very idea of anyone telling us no, grating against the idea of God being God instead of us, of God possibly knowing a way that we might not know, while we were still sinners, as the Apostle Paul says in Romans 5, 6, still grumblers, It was at that time that Christ died for us. While we were still hostile to God in our sin, God was rich to us in mercy, working out redemption through the death of Jesus Christ on the cross. It was Jesus who was truly drawn out into the wilderness to die At the cross, not the wilderness next to Sinai, but the more infinite wilderness of exile from God in sin. It was Jesus who was given no rest at the cross. It was Jesus who was bereft of all dignity at the cross, having his body stripped and bloodied and beaten, being mocked. It was Jesus who went hungry and thirsty, who did not have luxuries, who was poor his entire life. It was Jesus who left the riches of heaven to tread the barrenness of our sin so that in taking our place, not for his sin, for our sin, that we might take his place in redemption. That we might be given back our dignity because our rebellious grumbling, our God-envying, had been put to death at the cross with him. That we might be, in fact, not just given our dignity, but given rest on top of all these things, that we might no longer be slaves to all our achievements, to all our goals and ambitions and desires, but to have rest, to be satisfied in God, to be given back rest from the slavery to sin, from which there is no rest, because our slavery ended in dying with Jesus by faith at the cross, and no one is a slave after their death. If you know Jesus Christ this morning, you are no longer a slave because you have died with him, and no one is a slave after their death. You are free this morning, free from all that would hold you back. This is what God did for us. This is how he relates to us. Even in our grumbling, he is ten steps ahead of us, bringing you to the thing that you didn't know you need, even though it's going through the way you didn't want to go. Do you know that kind of God this morning? One that's planning to give you more than you would ask for yourself? Or are you letting the lies of sin make you doubt whether He's really for you? Whether someone could possibly know a better way than you? I want to encourage you to ask yourself that question this morning. Do I know that kind of God? Am I trusting in Him in that way and by way of application to close us out I want to give you two tools to start living into what our passage gives us about God's gracious response to grumbling to consider and return first to consider consider where consider where am I grumbling in my life right now am I grumbling that the pastor has gone on this long in the sermon right am I grumbling at someone in my life Am I grumbling at God for letting me languish where I feel like I'm languishing? Am I grumbling at at the church, at Renewal? Am I grumbling at this city? Am I grumbling at at my neighbors? Where am I grumbling? And what does that grumbling say about what I really want most? Consider. Where am I grumbling and what is it that's, that's making me do that? What's making me frustrated a circumstance bills health whatever it may be what do i really want that's behind that that i'm being denied is it god or is it something else and if it's something else is that thing going to run 10 steps ahead of me and carry me like god will at some point faith is going to call you to set down the thing that you have been so desperately holding on to for life and let it go and start holding on to something else And that may be a scary moment for you. But God is holding you the entire way. The question is, will you let go and be held? Second, return. Return to the one who responds to your grumbling with grace. Do you feel like you are cringing before God every time you sin? That I can't read Scripture right now because of how I just sinned. I can't pray because of how I just sinned. God is moving towards you more than you were ever moving towards him. Return to relying on the one who cares for you like this. Return to relying on him for what you need, not five years at a time, not one month at a time, but just one day at a time. Trusting that he is committed to bringing you through this wilderness. Let your needs draw you to him. Let even your complaining and grumbling be something that he uses to wake you up to the good things that you're missing from him. Let that one day at a time sustenance keep you coming back to him most of all, because that's what the wilderness is meant to do, to bring you to him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for all the ways that you run ahead of us. Even this morning, even right now, we thank you how you work all things for the good, even our complaining and our grumbling. God, we thank you that you give us a a dignity and a rest that we didn't know we lost, that we didn't know we need, that we're just so used to not having. We're so used to constantly chasing and earning that we don't know what it is to receive a gift. God, thank you that you are intent on giving us a gift. But God, we confess uh, the ways that we have grumbled at you, the ways that we have desired something more than you, the ways that we've desired to be back in that spiritual Egypt. Father, would you liberate us from that this morning? Would you bring us out of slavery? Would you put to death on the cross if we don't know you, that life that would walk away from you? And if we have died with you on the cross, Jesus, would you give us the ability to walk in that newness of life, even if it's through the wilderness? We pray that you would do these things, Father, in your Son Jesus' precious name and by your powerful Holy Spirit. Amen. I invite you to stand now as you are able and sing in response to this God who pursues you with such grace. Let's sing.